You're listening to the City Church Downtown Podcast. Now here's Doug Robbins. Good evening. For the second time in as many weeks, a grand jury has found the evidence is just not there to charge a white police officer in connection with the death of a black civilian. The officer gets out of his vehicle and pursues Michael as he's shooting his weapon. Michael jerks his body as if he was hit. Then he turns around, faces the officer, and puts his hands up. And the officer continues to shoot him until he goes down to the ground. A deadly struggle between police in Louisiana and the man they were trying to arrest, captured on video and shared around the world today, is provoking questions and outrage. Here is the situation according to police officers in Dallas, Texas. According to the police chief there, we have had 11 police officers hit by gunfire. Sadly, four of them have died of their wounds. I'm a law-abiding citizen, like I'm just a, I, I am the like most boring person you will ever meet and I am scared to death. My wife and I were just having an exchange of I'm not driving my, um, my car, the car that I call my car because the headlight is out and her conversation was let's not, let's not give you any reason to get pulled over and I, I'm, because I don't want to be pulled over because it's scary. Um, because when I watch these things happen, what goes through my mind is that could be me <laughs> when I see anybody and whether they deserved it or whether it was procedure or whether it was in the law, I'm not as concerned about that part. I just know that it could be me shot or dead. And it, it scares me, especially if there's not a cause or anything along those lines, because the, it could be a, I, I've seen pretty consistently justification of what's happened. and what plays in my head and it's kind of morbid and weird but what plays in my head is how would they justify my shooting right if i'm stopped by an officer and i and i don't do the right thing how would that play out or if there's a mistaken identity because i'm a suspect right in some crime that happened nearby and i fit the description it's it's frightening and it's scary and so some those interactions with police if i'm ever pulled over which is pretty rare um, but when I am, it's, it's a tense environment because I'm scared that it's life or death. It feels like a life or death interaction. And now I have kids and I'm married and it's, it's frightening. Well, I know I'm gonna have to have the talk. And the talk is what every black parent has with their black son or black daughter. And the talk is, son, no matter what they say, when it comes to police officers, when they pull you over, don't make any sudden movements, no matter what you do, turn your music down, have your ID ready, don't be disrespectful, don't say anything, don't be yourself, right? Just be, be as subservient and obedient as you possibly can be because I want you to come home. And it feels weird to have to have that, the talk but the talk is an important part of black American culture. And it's one that almost every young black person has heard from their parents. The talk is, an, is going to be something I have to tell my sons about. And it's a little bit weird because my wife is white and they, they look different. So one of my one-year-old has like pale skin and red hair. And then my older son who's four is a little darker skinned. Um, and so I'm not sure how they're going to be treated. But as soon as people see me, they are treated as black. Well, we know this is a complex issue, right? Because on the one hand, we have folks that are concerned and uh, afraid, and then on the other hand, we certainly have 
great police officers that are trying to serve us by laying down their lives for us, and they don't know what kind of circumstance they're going to roll up on either. And so uh, it can be very complex, and there are a lot of nuances to this issue. So with that in mind, before we get into the teaching side of things today, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him by His Spirit to speak to us. Father, uh, we pray that by your Spirit, you would help us. We open our hearts and minds to you and your Word and what you would want us to understand and receive today from your Word, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, over the past many years, I've been trying to root out all the seeds of racism that had been planted in my heart in uh, years past and my upbringing. And I remember when I was a young Christ follower as a teenager, uh, a black friend of mine from school uh, would come over and spend the night. One night when he was spending the night, we were hanging out. He prayed to receive Christ into his life, and uh, I invited him to come to me with, uh, with me to my church. My church at that time was primarily white, and I was glad to see that uh, the people at church really accepted my friend Ronnie into the church, and everything was cool until the day that Ronnie started dating one of the white girls in the church. And then I found myself sitting in the pastor's office, and the pastor that I loved, um, man with an earned doctorate degree, really bright individual, was trying to use texts from the Old Testament to tell me that the races shouldn't mix and intermarry in that way. And I could not turn my head from that one. You know, sometimes what I mean by turning my head is like I can blow it off and I can move on. Well, this was not one I could not move on from. And that is the big idea, to the, big idea to the conversation that I want to have with you this afternoon. And that is I want to ask you, when it comes to matters of racial inequality, don't turn your heads. Don't blow it off. And also, don't turn your heads means a willingness to look into the eyes of others that are different from you and forgive and love. So we're going to see a story of equality in the Bible today as uh, we see the Apostle Peter who went up to his roof one afternoon and he fell into a trance. And in that trance, he saw a, a sheet come down from heaven. In front of that sheet, there were different animals that were non-kosher. That is, uh, it wasn't okay for a Jewish person to eat those kinds of animals. And he heard a voice that said, hey, Peter, go kill one of those animals, barbecue it up and eat it. That's my translation of the text there, barbecue part. Um, and Peter said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm a good Jewish boy. I've never eaten anything that is not kosher. And the voice came to him three times. And finally he said, no, I'm not going to do it. I've never eaten the wrong thing. And look at Acts chapter 10, verse 15. But the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. And once Peter woke up from that trance, there were two guys at his front door. And they were representatives of a man named Cornelius who was a Roman military commander. And Cornelius had had a vision in which God told him to invite Peter to his home to learn more of Jesus. And these two men were there inviting Peter to come to Cornelius' home. There was a problem for Peter because according to his spirituality at the time, he was not allowed to mix with Gentile people. This guy was a Roman, non-Jew. And look at Acts chapter 10, verse 28. Peter told them, you know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me 
that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. And look at a few verses later in verse 34. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism in every nation. He accepts those who fear Him and do what is right. And you know, this mentality of Peter growing and learning to accept people of different nationalities is one of the things that I love about our church. I mean, there are all kinds of different people here among you. I mean, think about it. In the same room with you, there are Democrats and Republicans who actually love each other, unlike what we see on TV all the time. And there are people who are tradesmen and professionals here. They're artists and students. Some come from very dark backgrounds like drug addiction. Some have come out of cults. Some have come out of prison. There are some from really dark backgrounds like Methodists and Baptists and where my naughty Catholics, right? It's like if grandma knew you were here and not at mass, you'd get smacked with the chunkler, right? You know what would happen there. And our church may be better than most at this type of issue of racial equality, but we still want to grow in this area, do we not? And so I want to take you uh, back to the Old Testament for a minute. Um, and many people are okay with people of another race until it gets to the watershed issue. And that watershed issue is interracial marriage. So I want to take you back to the Old Testament to show you the passage that my former pastor tried to use to uh, say that the races should not intermarry. Look at Deuteronomy 7, 3, and 4. Do not intermarry with them, and don't let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters. They will lead your young people away from me to worship other gods. Now, I want to ask you, is this prohibition based on skin color or an incompatible spirituality? Well, I would say it is the latter. It has nothing to do with skin color. It's about uh, other nations in which people had spiritual views that were incompatible with the clear teachings of the Scriptures, because if it were skin color, as a lighter-skinned person, I would have actually been excluded from this, because most of these people were from the Middle East um, who were writing this. But when both parties in a relationship are Christ followers, it brings down all the walls that divide. I want to take you now back to the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3, look at verse 27. It says, "...and all who have been united with Christ in baptism..." have been made like Him. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all Christians. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So, let's go back to the Old Testament for just a second and see an interracial marriage there. And that interracial marriage we're going to see uh, with Moses and his Cushite wife. So, to see this story, we're going to have to look at Numbers chapter 12 and start with verse 1. While they were uh, at Hez, uh, uh, Hazaroth, Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because he had married a Cushite woman. You say, well, what is a Cushite woman? One husband told me that his wife's getting cushier all the time, but that's not a Cushite woman, okay? A Cushite woman is a woman who's from the land of Cush. And Cush is what is modern-day Ethiopia. So if Moses' wife was from Ethiopia, what color was she? 
A little louder. Come again. She was black. Moses was married to a black woman. And what we saw in Numbers chapter 12 is that Miriam and Aaron were speaking against Moses. They were criticizing Moses because he married a black Cushite woman. So how does God respond to Miriam when she is criticizing Moses for his interracial marriage? Look at Numbers chapter 12, verse 9. It says, the Lord was furious with them, and he departed. As the cloud moved from above the tabernacle, Miriam suddenly became white as snow with leprosy. So it's like God saying, hey, Miriam, you only like people with uh, uh, lighter skin for Moses to marry? Well, I'll give you some white skin. I'll give you white with leprosy kind of skin. Unless you think that black is always a metaphor for sin or uncleanness in the Bible, here's a case where white is a clear symbol of something unclean in leprosy. And there's no place in the world where interracial marriage is discouraged and the groups live with equal respect, honor, and opportunity. It can exist. The culture with the money and power will always dominate and oppress the other culture. So, I am a white man, mostly uh, French and English descent, just a little bit of Cherokee Indian. And I have a white daughter that means more to me than my very life. And if you were to ask me, Pastor Doug, would you encourage your daughter to date and marry a brown man, a black man, an Asian man, a Palestinian man? What would you say? Would I encourage my daughter to date a man of color? Absolutely not. I would not. In fact, my daughter is not allowed to date any man right now. That's what's going on. I don't care if he's white, black, brown, whatever. All boys are evil right now for my teenage daughter. But I realize that someday she may, against my will before she's 50 years old, want to date. And when she does, Lord, I don't ask for much, but I'm praying God that my daughter will uh, marry a man that loves Jesus, that walks in his spirit, that is not a materialist, that cares for the poor and roots for the San Antonio Spurs. And if I get that, my prayers are going to be answered, right? Okay. And I hope that I will apply 1 Samuel 16, 7, which says, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And some people say, well, in an interracial marriage, it sure is hard on the kids because after all, their kids will be half-breeds. Well, I would encourage you to just walk up into Kid City and look at some of the beautiful half-breeds up there. Sometimes I think it actually is more of an advantage than a disadvantage when the races mix in that way. And we know here that the Father's heart is broken over the racism and tensions in our country and in our world. And this has to be a place that communicates racial equality, harmony, and unity together. We will not turn our heads from these issues. Now, most of you would probably say, I don't consider myself to be a racist. And you'd say, Pastor Doug, since I'm not really a racist, then how can I keep from 
turning my head because we obviously know we're not going to participate in obvious racism, right? Like what happened when a group of primarily white Alamo Heights fans chanted USA, USA after winning a boys basketball game back in 2012 against Edison High School, which is predominantly Hispanic. Now, in fairness to Alamo Heights, their superintendent apologized for that uh, happening, and we all know that you get a few teenage guys together from any race, and you're going to have something stupid happen eventually, right? But we know we're not going to participate in those obvious kinds of racism, but also don't turn your heads from what we're calling microaggressions. Microaggressions. Let me give you a definition of this. Microaggressions are those brief, commonplace, daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative racial slights and insults towards people of color. And so let's check back in with Pastor John, uh, who describes some microaggressions he's experienced. I was pretty excited to go to college, I'm pretty pumped up about it, and I went to a, a good school, USC. I can always talk about it all the time, right? And I was pretty excited, got scholarships, got in. It was super exciting, but it, it, it was, you know, I was just a student, a regular student like anybody else. And anytime I would tell someone about this, they'd go, oh, well, what sport did you get a scholarship for? And it was like, no, no, I, like, I'm smart, like you just wanna go, no, I'm smart, it wasn't my athletics. But it's the assumption that if a black man is going to college, especially, I'm a fairly large person, right? If I'm going to college, it's because I got an athletic scholarship and not because of my intellect or my ability. And then with that part, you know, there's usually follow-up questions like, oh, you know what, you are really well-spoken. It's like, well, compared to what? <laughs> like, what were you expecting me to sound like? And you hear those little biases in people, even people that you love and you respect, you hear those things. And it, it's those, what I call like microaggression kind of things that just, they, they chip away at you that other people might not notice. So we have to be aware of and watch out for microaggressions, but also we have to watch out for systems of oppression. Systems of oppression. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you have any influence over a system of education, of hiring, or of housing, make sure that you influence that system to include people of every race. There are people that cannot get homes because of systems of inequality. There are people that cannot get good education for their children because of systems. There are people that can't get particular jobs because there's a system in place. And so if you own a business, if you have influence over the hiring practices, influence it towards equality. So there's microaggressions, there are systems, and then there's also uh, a way in which we have to view stories. Do not believe a single story. Let me explain what I mean by a single story. Uh, there's an author named Chimamanda Adichie, and she gave a really great TED Talk that's titled The Danger of a Single Story. She's an author who came to the United States as a student to attend an Ivy League school for college. And her college roommate was a white girl, and she asked her, 
um, can I hear a recording of some of your tribal music? And she said, what do you mean my tribal music? I mean, uh, you know, I have a Mariah Carey CD. Can you, you want to listen to that or what's going on? And what happened was what she found was that her roommate had a default posture of pity towards her, not of equality. Her roommate had believed a single story about Africans that positioned all Africans as in poverty and uneducated, and that simply was not true. In these single stories, if we believe them, it can lead to a lot of pain in others. So let's check back in with Pastor John as he talks about this. Just the other day, there were some kids playing with my son, and um, it was the first time that this was real. And nobody said anything inappropriate, but they were playing like Star Wars. And they're like, oh, well, you have a stormtrooper and you're black, so you're Finn. And they told my son that. And I was like, I won't, um, it's so small, but it made me wanna, it, it made me cry. Um, because he's, he's four. And uh, he loves Finn and he love like, it's not about that, it's just that, Oh God, they, other people know. It's like I thought maybe he could pass for something else and I realized that his reality is gonna be similar to mine. And um, it, it was jarring and jolting and shocking to, I'm gonna have to talk to him about it soon. And he's four. He should just be able to play and not worry about about how he's going to grow up or anything like that. And, and I realize that it's not going to happen. It, we've made a ton of progress and I'm proud of that and it's good, but it's not, it's not going to help my son because the other kids are going to tell him what he is. And in this case, it was a positive sense because it's like the coolest character from Star The Force Awakens. But what does that look like when kids are mean? And what does that look like when he's not near me? What does that look like when he's alone? And how is he equipped to handle this? So I feel like I have to equip him, otherwise he can get into some real trouble. And he's, he's young enough that it doesn't have to happen yet. Um, but what's gonna happen when he's 12 or 13? So I know what some of you may be thinking, well, aren't we being a little overly sensitive about some of this stuff? But let me ask you, do you get a little sensitive about your children? and what they will have and what they won't have. And so can we enter into the conversation with a little bit of humility and extend a little more grace towards people that are different from us? You know, some time back I sat down and had a conversation with Nettie Hinton who told me what her life was like as a child. And I sat down and uh, watched a Spurs game with Nettie and uh, we talked about uh, all kinds of issues. By the way, I really love this shirt, in case you can't tell. <laughs> but Nettie was the first African-American female to uh, graduate from the University of Texas at Austin. And she marched with Dr. King. So I figured she could teach me a thing or two about equality. And I can guarantee you, of all the people that I've ever met, Nettie Hinton will not turn her head on matters of equality. So anyways, as we talked, she explained to me that when she was a little girl, she would come here to the Cameo Theater and watch nine-cent movies with her mother. 
this was the first African-American theater in San Antonio, and everyone could walk through the front door. And then she told me about how she'd go down the street to the Majestic Theater with her mother, and they couldn't go in the front door there. They had to go in the back door because that was the colored entrance in those days. Well, Nettie is a part of a choir group, and her choir group in recent days got asked to sing at the Majestic, and she explained to me how in recent days she still had to go through the back door because now the back door to the Majestic is the door to the green room. I thought that was pretty cool. And she was so excited about that choir performance that she took the program from that performance. And she went to the historic cemetery where her mother's buried. And she put that program on her mother's grave. And she said, Mama, you're never going to believe where I sang today. And when she told me that, it kind of melted me. And I thought about our church and this building where we worship, where it's a place where everyone has always been able to walk through the front door. And is anybody on board with keeping it that way, where everybody can still walk through the front door? Yeah. So some of you know I'm also pretty good friends with Pastor Raymond Bryant over here at the Emmanuel AME Church. He's the pastor there, and uh, Pastor Bryant has tutored me in issues of equality, and he's helped mentor me in, in these things. Um, And so the picture that you see on screen was taken the first Sunday after the shooting that happened in Charleston where nine people lost their lives to hatred. And so that Sunday, I wanted to go worship with the brothers and sisters at Emmanuel AME because of my friendship with Pastor Bryant, and I wanted to show support and love to other brothers and sisters here in our city who particularly were suffering from that loss and that shooting. And because I'm friends with Pastor Bryant, he called on me to just stand up briefly and just testify for just a minute. And I got to tell you, when you're a pastor and you go to the AME church and you testify, it is fun because, I mean, you guys are pretty responsive, but these people talk back. They talk at you when you're talking to them. And I was a little bit tentative to start with, right? So I'm just standing up. I had to think of something impromptu to say. And uh, someone said, help him, Lord. And then it's like, <laughs> and so I started to feel a little more comfortable and started to talk a bit more. And someone's all, hey, man. And then from there, I felt real comfortable. And I went on one of my rants that you guys have heard me go on many times before. Like I was like, yeah, the church ought to be a place that welcomes everybody from bikers to bankers, PhDs to GEDs, every different age, race, walk of life. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're white collar or blue collar or some people who wear dog collars and someone's like, preach it, white boy. <laughs> and then dude on the organ's all, er, <laughs> I thought I was pretty cool until Pastor Bryant got up for his message. And when he did, he spoke that message in his voice of authority that sounds like James Earl Jones. And he went through the 200-year history of the AME church that was founded on oppression, where many of the brothers and sisters have hung from the cords of injustice. And then he read a litany written in honor of the Emmanuel Nine. And the litany was entitled, The Doors of the Church Are Still Open. 
He said the evil one wanted a race war. Instead, there came an outpouring of love, sympathy, and tears from white people. Fervent prayers offered for him, the shooter, by black people. With shock and anger still wafting in the air, family members amazingly spoke words of forgiveness. And then Pastor Bryant with the whole congregation said, and the doors of the church are still open. And you know the reason they have that peace in their hearts at the AME church is because even in the midst of being slaughtered, those nine were gracious and forgiving. And I was blown away by the words of Nadine Collier, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance. As she looked into the eyes, she didn't turn her head, but she looked into the eyes of the shooter, Dylan Roof, at his hearing. And she said, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. This is courage. And if you've ever been the victim of hate or racial profiling, Pastor Bryant would say to you, the way that you keep from turning your head is that you look your oppressor in the eye and you say like Jesus would, I forgive you. Because violence begets violence, doesn't it? And so today, I intend to stand in for those who have oppressed you and say to you, what they should say if they were standing before you today. And you can choose if you will allow bitterness to ruin your heart or if you will forgive. So let me stand in for a moment. For all the systems that I've created that kept you down, that kept you and your family members from rising up and being prosperous, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? For all the racial slurs that my mouth has spoken that made you feel less than, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? For all my prejudice, overt and unintentional, it was all evil. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? And you know why some here have the courage to forgive? Because they follow the example of our good Lord Jesus, who even in the midst of his death, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Check back in with Galatians 3.27. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have been made like Him. There is no longer a Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all Christians. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And we did not get the opportunity to come into the family of God because of a skin color, but red, a blood color. Jesus spilt his blood on the cross for you and I, no matter the color of your skin, so that you could be a part of a diverse family of love. And if you would like to receive that free gift from him today, there's no reason why you couldn't do that through prayer 
right now. So with that in mind, let's bow our heads and close our eyes, and you just sit before God and in your own heart and mind say to him, God, I know I've sinned, but I know that Jesus' red blood was shed on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And I choose today to believe that Jesus died on that cross for me so that my sins could be wiped away and that I could spend an eternity in relationship with you, God. Welcome into my life. Father, for the rest of us, we pray that you would make us so wise in the way that we are peacemakers here in our city and in our world, people who have no idea. They just follow the plans and the thoughts of Satan who's trying to uh, destroy and divide people. But we say we're having no part of those divisions. We will love each other here no matter our tones. We are a mosaic of beautiful different colors that reflect the light of the glory of God to a divided world. And we pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit citychurchdowntown.com.